Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 2nd, 2019. The share ID numbers for Friday, May 31st are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,977. That's 12977. For the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,979. That's 12979. Today, A Vision for You presents Step 1, Understanding the True Nature of Our Malady. Step 1, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. The first step is so basic to recovery that the AA 12 and 12 says it's the only step that we can practice with, quote, absolute perfection, end quote. Step one is an admission of the central problem we face as compulsive overeaters, our powerlessness over food and the unmanageable life that has resulted. Once we can admit our powerlessness, a door opens to the solution to our problem. As long as we deny our powerlessness, however, our problem cannot be solved. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, the doctor who wrote the two letters in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an abnormality of the body. Dr. William Silkworth called it an allergy of the body, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of foods and ingredients, we develop cravings which overpower us. And we have an abnormality of the mind. Silkworth called it a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again and again and again and again. Thus, we can't stop once we start the allergy that creates the cravings, and we can't stop from starting again the obsession that sends us back. We are in a vicious cycle. Lack of power is our dilemma. Step one is not merely an intellectual admission of powerlessness. It is an emotional acceptance of our powerlessness at a gut level. As the big book says, we learn that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we are compulsive overeaters. This is the first step in recovery. Joining us today to elaborate and talk about the nature of our amount Malady is Jason Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Pennsylvania. Jason is committed to our 12-step way of life, is a loyal member of Visions and Overeaters Anonymous, growing along spiritual lines, and he's here to share about step one today. Good morning and welcome, Jason. Thanks, Leah. Do I still sound okay? You sound great. Thank you. Great, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I, I don't know if I have much more to add, so maybe we can just finish there and uh, take a few questions. You're not getting off that easy. Uh, okay, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Thanks a lot, Leah. Um, good morning. I am Jason Kay. I'm a recovered compulsive eater and bulimic. I live outside of Philadelphia in the western suburbs. I'm very, very grateful to be here with you this morning. Um, it's a little challenging for me to talk uh, into the phone. I love to speak with people and connect. Um, personally, so I'm hoping today to speak to you in an informal kind of personal way. Uh, And I almost think about Bill talking to Eddie, you know, sitting across from the table, um, old friends talking, and I kind of want to approach this talk like that. So I'll try to speak um, more of a conversational and impersonal way. And uh, I look forward to the question and and answers because 
the dialogue for me is a little bit um, easier than the monologue, but I will um, give it my best shot here. And just to give you an overview of what I want to talk about today, I do want to give you a short bio, maybe five minutes. I don't want to tell my story in a long, drawn-out way, um, but then I want to talk, talk about these uh, step one considerations, which Leia really summarized really nicely for us, um, giving, giving a good um, little overview of those. Um, and then at the end, I want to talk about um, hope and recovery in just a brief way. And the, for me, an experience uh, I had of, of finally surrendering, taking step one fully um, and, and starting to recover. Um, so I'll try to do those three, um, three, three parts. The middle part will be the longest. The bio and the, the, the beginning will be short, just to give you a sense of who I am. Um, and the middle part will be the longest, uh, talking about the first step and then finishing on that note of hope and um, talking about the fact that recovery is possible. Um, so to give you a bio, I, I, um, I grew up and around the age of 10 to 12, I found myself being uh, very emotional and turning to food um, quite a bit. I um, had one of my first successful diets um, when I was just uh, overweight, and I decided to stop eating so much and just made a decision. And I found, you know, over time, I lost a bit of weight. My clothes fit better. Um, at that time, I still had the power and control and ability to make up my mind and decide to go on a diet. Um, however, I didn't realize I was in the grips of a progressive uh, disease. Uh, and as I progressed into my teenage years, things got worse. I was focused on um, food and weight and trying to lose weight. Um, I thought I was overweight and was very, very conflicted about my food use and my food issues. I thought I ate a ton. Um, but like I said, I was pretty thin. If I look back on pictures of myself from that time, I'm, I'm like a rail. Um, so I had some body dysmorphia issues. Um, by the time I was 20 years old, I had started attending um, some OA meetings. Uh, it was on my radar. I even read the big book when I was around 20 years old, and I was fascinated. I remember staying up almost all night, and I just could um, just hours upon hours reading this book, and I thought it was just so fascinating, so interesting. There was something there. Um, I went to some 12-step uh, meetings from Overeaters Anonymous as a 20-year-old um, around that time, roughly. Uh, but I couldn't quite jump into the program. I'd leave those meetings thinking, am I a compulsive eater or not? Um, you know, throughout my 20s, I'd, you know, I'd move and I wouldn't pick up the program again. And then I'd, you know, get rid of all my literature. And I'd go back into the rooms as things kind of progressed. And I'd say, well, I probably need to be here. You know, I'd go into those rooms and I, I wouldn't necessarily see a lot of recovery. You know, I wouldn't see a lot of people really on fire um, with this program and, you know, really living a great life. Uh, and I didn't want to be part of this group. I'd leave. I'd say, I'm not one of them. I'm not one of those people. But by my 30s, I, I was really starting to get to some points where I just really needed program. I couldn't really um, justifiably get rid of all that literature and start avoiding meetings. Um, things started getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I even tracked my spending and my eating behavior one month just as a, a you know, just as a way to try to get a handle on it and get a sense of what's going on. I ended up spending about $1,200 in one month and eating out 62 times, so a little more than twice a day, you know, going to convenience stores or going to get food from restaurants, which is a big thing for me. I was looking for 
certain specific foods that would give me the effect, certain um, types and certain uh, certain quantities, but certain um, special foods, things you can only get in restaurants or uh, and certain combinations. Uh, my bulimia had increased in severity. You know, there were times in my 20s where I would um, throw up I mean, literally twice a year, you know. Uh, by my late 30s, there were times where it was every day, every other day for periods of time. Um, so this is a progressive illness. Um, when I was 30, so, so by the time I finally believe I took the first step, I was 37. Um, so I like to say I took 17 years to take this first step. Um, and that's why, for me, this is a, a step I'm passionate about. I really look to seek to find ways to um, keep it alive in me now, to deepen my understanding of it. Uh, and also, I really look for ways to try to communicate this to people, uh, to communicate this to new people. Um, so it's, it's kind of a big fascination for me. Um, so that's just a thumbnail sketch. Um, right now, I have a little more than a year and a half of abstinence. Um, my weight loss is uh, about 60 pounds. Um, I'm in a pretty, uh, a very healthy body. Um, I, I like to joke around. I have a, a six-pack abs, but, you know, you kind of have to squint and really know what you're looking for. So, like, not quite a six-pack, but, you know, um, so that's just kind of a funny little joke I tell. Um, so I'm in a healthy body. I stay very active. I play a lot of sports. And I'm extremely grateful for my physical recovery at this point. So, um, so that's just my short thumbnail sketch. And, and like I said, it's this 17-year journey um, to understanding what step one was. Um, and I titled this talk, um, and I was thinking about titling it something about a 17-year journey into step one. Um, but I, I read this in a, the 12 and 12, and it really struck me. And it said, it was discovered when the alcoholic planted in the mind of another the true nature of his malady. That person could never be the same again. And just just pause for a minute and think about that. And, and, and I just invite us all to open our minds, just to have an experience, an understanding, a deepening. You know, step one happens in our innermost self. You know, we, we admit to our innermost self in our guts, and we feel this in our bones. Um, and if you can have that admission today, if you're new on this line, if you're struggling, if you're in relapse, if you're just getting out of the food, um, uh, and for everybody here, we can have a new experience today. Um, we can leave this hour, you know, never being the same again. I'm setting the bar high for myself. Of course, I think I'll probably end up disappointed, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll at least aim high and see what happens. Um, so one thing I like to look at is, um, you know, I, I like to look at our history and study our history. And looking at the case of Dr. Bob Smith, Bob was in the Oxford group. Um, he had the solution. Uh, he had a solution, a program of recovery. If he didn't understand the problem, he floundered in the Oxford group for a couple of years. Um, when he finally met Bill, um, Bill was able to really explain the true nature of this disease. Um, Bill, um, Dr. Bob was able to pursue the course of recovery with a willingness and openness he had never uh, done so in the past. And, and for me, the magic of this program is the nature of the problem, uh, which brings us to the solution, the spiritual awakening, and the program of recovery outlined in the 12 steps. These three things um, per, per come together to provide this alchemy, this um, almost this magic, which creates this um, transformation of the psyche, the soul, the spirit, creates people who are reborn and can recover from this hopeless malady. So 
um, the thing for me is if you don't fully understand the problem, we're not going to be um, jumping naturally and organically into the solution. So really understanding um, understanding the, the, the problem uh, for me is, is extremely crucial, uh, extremely uh, important. And as I look at the big book, uh, you know, the first uh, time it talks about step three is on around page 60. It says this brings us to step three. Um, the chapter on we agnostics um, is about step two, but all the stuff leading up to that uh, is all step one consider consideration. These, um, uh, the big book gives more working text devoted to step one than any other text, uh, any, any other step in the text. And for me, that's just really important to understand, and that's really important to um, consider. Um, so starting on page 18, um, the, the, the first uh, part, uh, the first quote from the book I want to read is, it says, the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution, who's properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And again, this is that baseline. This is uh, part of the, the big bang uh, of our fellowship was Bill talking to Dr. Bob, uh, sitting down with Dr. Bob, an ex-problem drinker, Bill, who had found the solution, who knows the facts about himself. He knew to bring what Dr. Silkworth talked about um, the, the information about the allergy of the body and the craving of the mind to bring that to Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob was going in there saying, I don't want to talk to this Yankee. I'll give them 15 minutes. And they were there for hours. So this identification, you know, it's so important. And again, this is in the squiggly writing in the big book. It says until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Um, so again, this is, this is for me, um, um, uh, such an important thing that I, I, again, I just keep being drawn back to it again and again and again. Um, and another quote from the 12, uh, 12 and 12, that says, the principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung and flowered. Um, so, so let me just talk about some of, uh, some of my first step considerations. As I was going through um, my recovery, I started coming up against some health problems. I started to think, you know, if I just get, you know, I had a vitamin D deficiency. Oh, that's why I feel so bad. That's why I'm eating compulsively. Let me fix that. I'd fix that. I'd still be eating compulsively. I'd say, well, I don't feel right. I don't feel good. Um, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. Oh, my God, I'm so exhausted. I'm so exhausted. My mind isn't thinking right. This is why I'm eating compulsively. Let me take care of the sleep apnea. I was diagnosed with um some low testosterone. Oh my God, my hormones are out of whack. This is why. This is why I'm eating compulsively. I entertained this question uh, almost obsessively. Why am I eating compulsively? Why am I taking that bite? Why do I keep going back to these foods? And I looked for these answers on uh, psychologists' couches and doctors' offices, and uh, you know, one after another, these excuses, these ideas, these reasons and rationales as to why I ate kept being uh, eliminated. You know, I had the sleep apnea machine, I had the testosterone, I had depression medication, you know, and, you know, I had the therapist, I had the, I had the woman, I didn't have the woman, you know, all these external circumstances being adjusted, and guess what, I still kept eating compulsively. Uh, and for us, it talks about, um, you know, no human power can relieve us 
of our uh, of our of our alcoholism in our case our compulsive eating if i'm still looking for solutions outside of a human power if i'm looking for you know cognitive behavioral therapy if i think i'm going to find meet the right woman if i'm going to find the right job that's going to fulfill my purpose and passion in life and then i'll be able to eat compulsively if i think you know once i figure out stress like i'm too stressed once i get the right meditation if i'm still looking for those solutions um I'm not going to be willing to hear what the big book has to offer, uh, and I'm not going to really truly accept the fact of my powerlessness, the fact that I'm beyond human power, um, is one of the big messages uh, of the first step. We have to get that, you know, our willpower is strangely damaged. It's strangely in, insufficient. So the question I pose to newcomers and I pose to people on this line, what have you tried? What have you tried? And has it worked? And what else do you think there's left to try? Do you think there's something else out there that's going to save you? Do you want to go to a commercial weight loss program? Do you think if you get the flour and the sugar and the, you know, this food or that food and the right, um, the right food plan, then you're going to be able to control it? And if, and if I talk to newcomers um, and, and they still are thinking there's going to be a different way, another way, I don't think they're quite ready. I, I encourage them to try those ways. You know, find a cognitive behavioral therapist, you know. You know, if she's the right woman, go 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 find the right woman. You know, uh, more power to you. I had to exhaust uh, personally. I had to exhaust uh, all those different uh, excuses, all those different reasons. You know, I had an abstinence where I was still eating flour and a little bit of sugar, but just eating certain foods and counting calories. I lost a lot of weight. I relapsed. You know, I gained a bunch of weight back, and I said, okay. Finally, I'm willing to do it differently. I'm not going to have flour and sugar. I thought if I eliminated flour and sugar and I really weighed and measured and I really got my food plan right, I could be abstinent. So I, I, I set off again on another countless vain attempt. I'm trying to control my food, trying to do it on my own, using my own willpower. But um, you know, the 12 and 12 talks about how we warped our mind, um, chasing this insane obsession for alcohol. Um, our willpower is strangely damaged. It's not a power of mental control. Our willpower is not a um, sufficient tool, um, sufficient tool uh, to overcome compulsive eating. The other thing I did a lot and I didn't understand about the first step consideration is, 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 is I thought I hadn't made up my mind enough. You know, I, the big book talks about how we... Um, People surrounding the alcoholic is waiting for the day where they're going to raise themselves from their lethargy. They're going to assert their power of will. They're going to finally overcome this, right? So I kept waiting for that day, and I kept, just kept thinking, like, I just can't, I can't live like this. I can't do this. I thought if I, if I finally got in enough pain, I would finally make up my mind to do this. And I, I just kept day after day. I'd just be waiting. I'd be waiting for that time. And I'd, I'd get a moment, I'd, I, I, you know, maybe I'd capitalize on some positive feelings, I'd put down the food, and I'd just be absolutely determined, almost militant, almost obsessive about, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it this time. But our first step talks about it's, it's not a problem of will. Our willpower is strange, strangely damaged, and I don't actually have the power to carry that out. Yet, culturally, we hear stories, and, and especially in American culture, of this independence, this grit, this determination, this pull yourself up by your bootstrap. And I followed that illusion for a long time. Um, and even if I got some separation from, uh, from the food, 
um, that memory uh, of the suffering, uh, knowing that this had burned me, uh, you know, the big book talks about um, the fact that the kind of defense that prevents someone from putting their hand against the hot stove doesn't function enough. The fact that um, this is painful and the idea that we can keep a memory of it alive uh, isn't sufficient. Uh, and, and it talks about the big book says, um, the memory of the suffering of even a week or month ago doesn't rise in our minds with sufficient force to deter us from taking that first drink. You know, I would sit there and make a list. I'd call it keeping it green. And I probably could find a few of those keeping it green. And I start writing consequence after consequence of my compulsive eating, the money spent, you know, the, the, the vomiting, the bulimia, you know, I'd be going, you know, I play ice hockey, I'd skate down the ice and I'd be so exhausted and I'd I'd throw up in the, you know, I'd throw up in the uh, garbage can. I'd, I'd lay down to sleep to try to sleep and the food would come up and I'd be jumping out of bed, throwing up. I'd, I'd list all these consequences and I'd say, if I just, if I just, you know, looked at these consequences and saw how painful and terrible and, and gut-wrenching this, um, this disease is for me, that I, I'd eventually just make up my mind. Um, I'd eventually just... Um, uh, overcome that, and I do that. That that could keep me abstinent. And and what I uh, came to find out is that staring at the dark, you know, the problem, looking at the problem, uh, doesn't show us anything about the light. I didn't turn towards the light, towards the recovery, um, and I didn't realize. And I wasn't studying this book because this book, uh, the big book, tells us that that type of um, that type of uh, keeping the memory alive, keeping it green, is, isn't going to give us this um, sufficient sufficient uh, power or force of memory um, to overcome that. So step one is talked about in a, in a number of different ways uh, in the text. You know, officially it's um, admitted we're powerless over alcohol. In our case, alcoholic foods, our life had become unmanageable. But it, in another part of the text, it says we had to admit to our innermost, we had to concede to our innermost self that we were in fact alcoholic. Um, and, and, and this innermost self, um, piece is something that I didn't understand because I'd go to OA meetings and people are going around the room and they're saying, I'm a compulsive eater. Uh, Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a compulsive eater. Um, so I started to learn, like, if I want to speak, I need to say my name first and say I'm a compulsive eater. And then I could go on. Was I taking the first step? No, because I'd leave that meeting thinking, am I? I don't know, maybe I'm not, you know, in the middle of the night when it's just me and my thinking and nobody else is up and I'm thinking about it, I'm saying, mm, am I a compulsive eater? Maybe not, maybe not. And so um, the first step of recovery um, for me happens on the, on the inside in our gut. Um, and so I think that's just an important um, thing to say. And, and again, I like the way the big book, you know, um, talks about this first step in, in multiple ways, this uh, wording of I'm, I'm powerless you know, it doesn't have the same emotional resonance for me as I had to concede, you know, I had to, um, you know, to me, it almost talks about this surrender. I had to surrender uh, to this proposition. I had to understand. Um, but then again, we also have to look at what does it mean to be a compulsive eater? Even in some of those first meetings, I'd say, I'm a compulsive eater. But what does that mean? It means, well, I binge sometimes. It means I eat more than I want to. It means I, you know, I don't quite have a handle on this thing. Um, but uh, Dr. Silkworth in the doctor's opinion talks about some of the some of the qualifications and qualifiers for alcoholics. 
So in the doctor's opinion, he says men and women drink, especially, sorry, men and women drink because they like the effects produced by alcohol. It's so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, we cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Our alcoholic life seems to be the only normal one. So I wasn't asking myself about what certain foods were giving me this effect and even why I wanted this effect. And for me, the way I look at this and the way I try to talk to newcomers is I talk about the effect food gave for me and especially my alcoholic foods, certain binge foods. These are the foods you can't eat safely in any controlled fashion. If you can control them, it may be you can control them for a little bit. If you can control them, you're not necessarily really enjoying them. So we all have these foods. We've all identified these foods. And if you haven't identified these foods, these are your alcoholic foods, the foods that you turn to and uh, to get this effect. So for me, the way I describe this effect is I talk about the fact that food is something for me that's indescribably wonderful. Um, it has this kind of magic. It has this almost elusive um, uh, effect on me. Uh, I can be restless. I can be irritable. I can be discontent. I can be full of fear. I feel like I don't fit in. I'm sitting there thinking like other people, you know, they're bonding, they're making friends. Um, you know, life seems easy. I'm sitting here thinking, where's the rule book for this life? I, I, I didn't get it. And I'm not sure how to be happy or content. Um, but then I turn to the food and suddenly all oh, that doesn't matter to me. Suddenly I feel this sense of ease and comfort that's indescribably wonderful. And what it sounds like is just a big sigh, like, ah. And to me, that sigh, that's a release and the release of the psychic pain that I'm feeling. Psychic pain is about the spiritual malady. This is the core of, for me, what drives me into the food. I'm restless, irritable, discontent. You know, I have trouble in personal relationships. I can't feel useful. I suffer from, you know, from, from depression. I can't seem to make a living. But if I eat certain foods, suddenly my perception of reality has changed. Suddenly all those things don't matter. Suddenly I can take that deep breath. I can feel comfortable in my own skin. Um, and guess what? Food doesn't do this uh, for normal eaters. And I love to learn by comparing and contrasting. I like to look at and, uh, normal eaters in my acquaintances and friends and family and just look at their experience and try to relate it to, relay it to mine. Um, so for me, food is doing this uh, intensely wonderful, uh, almost uh, spiritual thing for me, a spiritual experience. So if you look at me uh, preparing food, and I remember coming home from school as a teenager, and I'd, I'd get out this electric fry pan, and I'd put butter in, and I'd put, you know, bread in, and I'd fry up this toast, and I'd put like this, you know, you know this huge, huge, almost like it's like a half-gallon uh, glass of like milk and chocolate milk. If you're looking at me preparing those foods, and I didn't see this until I looked back, if you were looking at me from the outside preparing these foods, I looked almost like a priest preparing a sacrament. I almost looked like a, a religious person preparing a religious ceremony because that's what food did for me. If food didn't do that for me, I wouldn't have followed it so far. I wouldn't have taken it down that road. But food does something for me that it doesn't do for the, for the, for the normal, for the normal person. Um, and I remember I was, uh, I had a job and I, I came into work and I had, uh, you know, this energy drink in my hand and my boss looked at me. She was about my age. We were very friendly. She, she looked at me and she said, 
you have a disturbing relationship with those energy drinks. And I just laughed at her. I didn't know what she was talking about, but that's my norm. But again, looking back on that, that these foods, certain types of foods are doing something so powerfully for, for me, I'm carrying that thing in there like it's worth its weight in gold. I'm like that Lord of the Rings character that's talking about his precious, this precious, this precious ring. I'm obsessed with it. It's doing something um, extremely powerful for me. Uh, and what you can do with my stories is, is relate to them. Ask them if, if, if it's true in your own experience. Ask, ask yourself if, if, if lay these considerations, these first step considerations up against your history, your history with food, um, and see if it's true and try to get that in your gut, try to understand that in your gut and try to relate to that. Um, the doctor's opinion also talks about um, chasing this effect. And while we admit it's injurious, we cannot after time differentiate the true from their false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the, the only normal one. So this thing gets progressively worse and worse. This is a progressive illness. It's a fatal illness. It's leading us down the tubes towards death in the end. But it doesn't go like that overnight. You know, when I was 20 and going to that first OA meeting, if I would have woke up the next day and I would have, the disease would have progressed to where I was when I was 37, when I finally got abstinent, I would have been shocked. I would have been appalled. But since it happened over those 17 years, we start getting comfortable with these things. We start thinking of these. Um, these are our new norms. This is just who I am. This is just how I, um, you know, yesterday looks a lot like today and today looks a lot like yesterday, but then it's just a little bit worse and it's a little bit worse. And I don't see that reality. It's, it's just in my head. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, I used to go around almost every day sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm going to lose weight. I'm losing weight. I'm going to start a diet. Meanwhile, I'd be eating compulsively, and I'd be just telling myself over and over again, I'm going to lose the weight. I've got to do this. I'm going to do this. Yet day in, day in out, I'm eating compulsively. I can't stay away from the food. I'm trying not to eat so much. You know, maybe I'm a little successful, but it's never quite right. Um, so I was, uh, I played hockey and I was in the locker room and I just happened to say to a buddy, I said, yeah, I'm losing weight. So I took a chance to vocalize some of these thoughts and he said, oh really? Okay. How much? I said, well, you know, I'm not really losing any yet. I haven't really lost any yet. And he says, well, what's your goal weight? I said, we don't really have a goal, goal weight, you know? And he says, well, what are you doing differently? And I'm like, well, I really, I'm not doing anything differently yet. And, and, and. I brought some of my inner dialogue out to light and I could finally start to see the insanity of it. I'm, I can't differentiate the true from the false. I'm believing this lie that I'm losing weight. I'm going to get this under control. When I started in recovery, I wrote a food history and I really looked back and I looked at everything and I started to see from that time in adolescence to even some younger memories when food meant something more to me than to typical people that it was progressively getting out of control. When I put that down on paper, when I looked at it, when I looked at my history, when I tried to study and understand this first step, understand my history, I could not um, say in any, with any truth or any sincerity that I was going to get control over this. And this is the insanity of it. Because like I said, when I was 10, 12, this started kind of going crazy for me. And when I finally got recovered, I was, I was 37. Um, so I've spent decades, decades trying to control this. And if you were to talk to me when I'm 35, 36, 
I would have told you I'm just about to get a handle on this. I'm just about to get it. You know, I'm just about to get control. I'm just about to get that diet going. Uh, and that, for me, is part of the in insanity. Um, so something else from the doctor's opinion I'd like to talk about and I think is essential, and Leah mentioned it in her introduction, um, is the craving, um, is the allergy and the craving. Um, so the doctor, uh, Dr. Silkworth says, we must believe the body is as abnormal as the mind. Um, and this concept of an allergy is, is kind of interesting. Um, and I define it as an adverse abnormal physical reaction. Um, and the adverse reaction for me when I eat alcoholic food um, is I break out in an irresistible urge for more. Um, and this is a, this is a craving um, not in the normal sense of the word. Uh, you know, I break out in a craving that I have, uh, don't have the power to stop. And once I stimulate that uh, phenomenon of craving, I can't tell you when that's going to be um, fulfilled, that when that's going to end. Uh, and same thing, lay this up against your own experience and, and think about some of the, the normal people in your life. So I have a friend who is, is not a compulsive eater. Um, and she had, um, she was talking to me something about a craving. And she had had a surgery around her stomach. Um, so she couldn't eat a lot. And, I, and I, in my mind, I'm like, that would be crazy. What if, what if she gets a craving? I said, you know, what happens when you get a craving? She goes, well, I eat the thing I was craving. And I said, well, then what happens? She said, I don't have the craving anymore. And I'm standing over there with my mouth kind of open like, wow, interesting. Because what happens when I get a craving? So if I indulge in some of my, um, you know, some of my uh, binge foods, my alcoholic foods, like if I eat a pint of, of ice cream, I'm coming back to that store maybe later on that day. Maybe on the maybe the next day, maybe I'm going multiple times a day. Maybe I'm getting embarrassed at how many times I'm going into that particular store. So I'm going to the same store for the same brand and the same flavor of ice cream. But what happens to me after uh, days and maybe weeks go by is as I go into that store, I'm reaching further back into that cooler case to get those. And I'm thinking, man, their delivery truck hasn't come in a little while. I wonder when they're going to get their next delivery. And then maybe one day I'm reaching back and I get the last one and I say, well, I better try the other one. This craving for me may go on for weeks, for months. I, I'm, I get caught in this vicious cycle. I can't, I can't seem to stop it. And maybe at some point I get kind of saturated on that particular thing, but then I notice there's another flavor and another brand or another thing, and it kind of switches in my mind, and I set down that road. Uh, I go down that road. So again, what are these normal eaters? And, and I, what's the difference between the normal eater and the compulsive eater? Um, and for me, again, I learned by contrast. I learned by looking at other other people. Um, and the big book routinely talks about, well, what about the chronic alcoholic? What about the real alcoholic? Or they say things like, if you're seriously alcoholic as, as we were, or if you're an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, the big book time and time again is trying to make these qualifications. Uh, between hard drinkers, uh, in our case it would be hard eaters, and moderate drinkers. Um, so, for instance, I have a, a coworker, and she, you know, she's losing weight. She's looking good. And I said, "Wow, how'd you lose weight?" And she said, "She said, you know what? I was just sitting there one day, and we were eating dessert, her and her husband. And she said, you know what? I'm just disgusted with myself. I'm disgusted with this. We have to do something." And boy, I so identified with that woman because 
I did that just about every single day. <laughs> I'd wake up in the morning. I'd say, I'm not going to binge today. I'm not going to purge. I'm not going to do any of this stuff. My mind would work on me. I'd be, I'd be going to that same store. And I'd have that same experience that she did. I'd say, I am disgusted with myself. I have to do something. The problem was is she had the power to carry that out. I didn't. So she lost weight. She, she keeps the weight off. To this day, she's changed her eating behaviors and her eating patterns. Now, she was overweight. Now, she ate poorly. But she made a decision to make up her mind and, and stop. Now, if you can make up your mind and stop, my hat is off to you. Go for it. You're not like me. I'm a chronic, real alcoholic. I make up my mind to stop, and I mean it. I mean it, and I, I can't do it. Another guy I play hockey with, he said, you know, oh, yeah, I gave, up, I gave up sugar. He says, I went to my doctor, and he showed me some of the blood work results and showed me my test results, and things were wacky. And he said, if you give up sugar, all this will, uh, you know, all this will come back into um, balance. And I'm looking at this guy, and he's muscular, he's hot, he's athletic looking. And he says, I gave up sugar. It was like a year or two ago. And he says he lost 35 pounds, and it's great. And I said, you know, and I'll talk to this guy, and I'll say, well, yeah, I, I need a 12-step program, and I, it's bigger for me. And that doesn't sink in. He doesn't relate to that. He says, yeah, and then he'll start talking about sugars and this and sugars and that, and every once in a while I'll have a beer, but that's not a bad thing, you know. And and he's not relating to me, and he's not he's not we're not connected on that same level because in my my sense, looking at him, he's not like me. He got a warning from a doctor that clicked something in his brain, and he said, "I'm done." Did I have those warnings from warnings from a doctor? Did they show me on a scale that I'm technically obese? Yeah, I had those warnings. Did I did I get blood work and did they look at my stuff and, and talk to me about all those things? I, I did. Now, if the question I ask newcomers in this this first step consideration is, have you ever had a good reason to stop, and could you follow through with that? You know, and a lot of times we delude ourselves. We think, if only, you know, if only my job wasn't so stressful, I'd stop. We'll get a different job. Oh, if only I didn't have such a bad childhood. Well, deal with your childhood. Get some counseling. You know, then then stop. You know, if only if only my you know, husband or whatever, all these external, external things. Um, if only I could, you know, get some of this external stuff taken care of. But for me, I have to look at this. This is an internal condition. Uh, I'm restless and irritable and discontent unless I can experience this sense of ease and comfort. I'm experiencing this physical allergy that makes me want more, more, more. I can't stop. And the question I have to ask myself and then I ask newcomers, I'm trying to qualify them and, and help them have a first-step experience is uh, when they give these excuses. Because sometimes people say, I'm emotional eaters. And I say, well, did you, you know, for the compulsive eater, did you eat when you were happy? Yeah, celebrating. You know, get together, celebrate, eat compulsively. Oh, yeah. Did you eat when you're sad? Did you eat when you're jealous? Did you, eat, did you eat when you had a relationship? Did you eat when you had a good job? Because, you know, we've all had decent jobs. You know, we've all had bad jobs, most of us, right? Did you eat when you were on vacation? Did you eat when you were bored, you know? And sometimes people say they're um, emotional eaters. Well, I like to eat sometimes when I'm feeling numb. I'm not feeling anything at all. And eating certain foods allows me to feel something, something, some sort of relief and release. 
So um, for me, I looked a lot at these externals, right? I'd go to the, uh, the therapist and say, yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I'm depressed or I'm stressed. You know, let me get the right medication. Then I'll stop. Let me get the right, let me get the right um, you know, stress reduction technique, you know. You know, I love sports. Let me play, you know, sports is a great stress relief. Let me just, you know, commit to playing hockey, you know, four times a week, and that'll, that'll give me that. And I just keep looking one situation after another, one reason after another. You know, oh, I don't have a great living environment. I can't prepare a lot of food, you know. But then I go in a living environment where I have a great kitchen, a great place to prepare food. Nothing changes. So I have to look, stop looking at those external circumstances. And sometimes that's why I don't like to tell my story about all these external circumstances because, you know, I, I was never uh, hugely overweight. You know, I lost about 60 pounds. I had that extra. You know, my bulimia wasn't extensively bad, but I like to talk about that internal experience, the day-to-day um, obsession of the mind of trying to stop eating compulsively, of failing, of experiencing that, that um, shame, uh, uh, doing it again, promising myself I'm not going to do it, being caught in a vicious cycle. Because, you know, somebody that can be uh, male, female, transgendered, you know, any different race, any different weight, and they can identify with that internal condition. There's people that are anorexic, maybe they're, you know, 100 pounds, maybe they need to gain weight, but they can identify with this obsession of the mind, this constant preoccupation with food to eat or to not eat, uh, and so forth. Um, so, um, and the big book talks about this, it's, it's, you know, they talk about these ideas, you, you know, it says, uh, I believe it's page 20, it says, you think he'd stop for her sake. You, you know, why can't he just make up his mind? Why can't he drink like a gentleman? And, you know, normal leaders will say things like this to us. They say, you know, it, it's all about portion control. I had a person say that to me and, and look me in the eye. And, and in my mind, I just thought, like, uh, I just, it didn't relate. I mean, it was like, uh, I don't know. It was just like he was telling me something like speaking Greek. Because you know uh, the solution for me wasn't just to just to get a, a measuring cup and a scale because uh, what he was saying didn't didn't register. I talked to my dad a little bit about this. He's not a compulsive eater. He says, you know, if you're feeling this, you know, he talked about go get some pepperoni and it's 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 kind of fatty and it's protein. And he said, I, I bet you can't eat more than half a stick and you'll be settled, set for the night and it's not too much. And I'm I'm sitting there thinking like, my God, like. You know, I've struggled day in and day out with a preoccupation, preoccupation of food and I can't stop and the, the, the foods that I eat and the combinations that I eat and he's telling me this. It's because he, he doesn't have my problems. So people can tell me, you know, eat like this. But the big book talks about behind these is a, is a world of ignorance. It, it doesn't apply to the true compulsive eater. The true compulsive eater, the, um, we don't have the power. We can't make up our mind to stop and then pull that off. Um, so uh, I had, you know, and people will say this too, they'll, they'll say things, and I don't like to use the word that I have an eating disorder, um, because sometimes I'll hear people say, yeah, I have an eating disorder. Oh, what happened? I went to counseling, things are better now. Every once in a while I struggle, right? Um, or they say I'm, an, an, I'm an emotional eater. You know, for, for me, I look at this as I have the disease of addiction manifested with uh, pursuing food behaviors, pursuing compulsive eating and bulimia. I have the disease of addiction, and I, I identify in um, with the disease concept. And I didn't understand this for a long time. 
uh, what helped me, um, and, and, and I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I asked my my family, because I, I heard that the, the disease of addiction is a genetically based um, predisposition to develop this addictive um, behaviors and, uh, and the, the disease of addiction. And somehow for me, when I heard it was something in our genes that could, could manifest that clicked in my head, almost like a scientific scientific thing and uh, a scientific explanation. So I went to my mom, my dad, and I said, uh, tell me about the disease of addiction in our family. And you just sit there and listen. I sat there and listened, and I started hearing about this uncle and that uncle and that aunt and this thing and that thing, and it was just fascinating to me. Um, so I identify strongly with this as um, a disease. And the only cure for this is to work the steps. Now, um, I tried going into the program, and I worked um, I worked uh, tools. Uh, I heard a lot about the tools in the program of recovery, um, but I didn't always hear about the steps. I worked this tool-based program, so I said, I'm going to call people every day. I'm going to read a certain literature. I'm going to write in a journal. Uh, I'm going to go to all these meetings. And at these meetings, I'd hear, um, sometimes I'd hear a weak uh, message of, of recovery. I'd hear people say things like, um, halt, don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And think about what that uh, message of recovery means uh, about the nature of our disease. It means that uh, if we don't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, or tired, you know, some of these kind of physical things or feelings that if our life doesn't go too bad, then we're going to be able to maybe feel good. And if we feel good, we're not going to eat compulsively. Now, I don't know if anybody's had success trying not to be too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. But for me, that message doesn't match up with the severity of my disease. The disease that I have is a spiritual malady coupled with this obsession of the mind that brings me back again and again. No matter what the circumstances, when I'm, I can be full, right? Don't get too hungry. I can be full and still overeat compulsively. Don't get too angry. How do you do that? The world pisses me off. I have a resentful mind of an alcoholic. Um, lonely. I can't seem to make connections with people. Um, tired. Well, let me get a good mattress and some sleeping pills. But guess what? I, I sleep 12 hours, I eat compulsively. I sleep three hours, I eat compulsively. Um, so, you know, understanding the nature of this disease. And I think we have to, um, we have to um, bring a strong message uh, of recovery, including not sharing some of these, maybe these pesky slogans that don't necessarily line up with the, the big book. If we talk about some of these things don't eat no matter what, the newcomer is going to be confused because if you're a real compulsive eater, no matter what, I eat. I eat compulsively. I can't, I can't do this. Um, and so this is part of my insanity. Uh, and part of my insanity and a little definition that I like, I like to use is, is going to a 12-step program and not working uh, or doing any steps. So that was part of my, you know, and that's just for a little bit of humor. Cause, but I did that. And that's part of my uh, insanity is to go, um, to go to 12-step programs, to go to a meeting. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about my day and I'm trying to release some stress. Because um, again, if I just wasn't so stressed, I wouldn't be so, uh, you know, I wouldn't have this need to eat compulsively and maybe I just, I need some help setting a boundary because I can't say no and I'm a people pleaser. And if I could just say no, but these things aren't related. And that's part of the insanity is we, you know, we, we think they are. Maybe early on in my um, the the arc of this disease, I could get a little 
maybe relief, a camaraderie, a little bit of that fellowship, and I wouldn't eat compulsively for a day or two or something would get better. Um, but then I'd be back at it. And then eventually the disease progresses. And, and again, I, I can't have real close, I couldn't, I couldn't make real close personal relationships. Um, you know, there's a fellowship that we have, which is the people, but the program is the 12 steps. The program is the 12 steps to actually work through the 12 steps. No 12 steps, you don't have the program of recovery. And for me, a real compulsive eater, beyond human aid, the fellowship can't save me. I can be in the midst of the obsession of the mind, um, and, and I, I can call people up. They can't do anything to help me. Um, so the other um, thing I like to talk about is that obsession of the mind. It says the real problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind, which means I may have a period of abstinence, and I had periods of abstinence, you know, three months. One time it was like 100 days. And then I'm free and clear of my substances that, um, that uh, stimulate the craving, and yet I make an insane decision, and I start eating compulsively again. I'm, but I'm driven inexorably with that, uh, with that um, obsession of the mind back into the food. Um, and for me, the obsession of the mind is like this. It's like, you know, when you're a kid and you're trying to hold your breath underwater, maybe going up against your friends, you take a deep breath and you stop. And you hold your breath. And you notice something's not right. Okay. And then after a little bit of time, you know, five or ten seconds, you get a little thought like, take a breath. And then after more time, that little thought, take a breath, is you better breathe until you, the more you kind of, and I was really competitive, so I carried this out as much as I could. Towards the end, your mind is screaming at you, take a breath. This hurts. You can't sustain this. Right? That's what it's like for me when I stop eating uh, my compulsive foods, my alcoholic foods. When I have some accident and I'm not recovered, I haven't worked the 12 steps, but I'm using the tools and the fellowship and some other things to try to keep this going, and I'm using some self-will. It's like when I start holding my breath. You know, I stop, and something doesn't quite feel right. And then after a time, maybe a week or two, I start getting a little voice eat some of those types of food. I, I ignore it. I, you know, make a couple outreach calls. I read some literature. A week or two later, that voice is getting louder and louder. And this is what happened to me. I had about 100 days of abstinence, and I was just obsessively working these tools. I was trying to outrun the obsession of the mind. You know, people who talked to me at that time, one woman said, like, you got to chill out a little bit. You know, you, you know, recovery isn't the only thing. Uh, in your life, but I was so obsessive about it just because I was using self-will. I was trying to outrun the obsession of the mind. Um, it was like a dark cloud hanging over me, and suddenly I'd be thinking every day, should I break my abstinence or not? And and this voice was just kind of egging me on, should, should you break your abstinence or not? I remember for an entire week, it, it came on me really strong, and I had, like, like I said, three months more of abstinence. And you know, I remember one day after work and it just, it's on me. I feel depressed. There's this dark cloud hanging over me. I think I knew in my gut, I can call three people. They're not going to relieve that, you know, uh, dark cloud hanging over me. They're not going to stop this voice from telling me to eat food. I just, so I said, let me just go to sleep. You know, I go to sleep at five in the afternoon, five in the evening, wake up in the morning. I'm always better in the morning. Diets for me start in the morning. 
wake up in the morning. Okay, I can handle this. Go to work. Get busy. But then it's on me the next night, and I can't escape it. I can't stop it. This happened for like a week, and it, it just kept getting louder and louder and so uncomfortable. And I think on the last night, I, I, I said, let me just go to sleep early again, you know. I woke up in the morning. The obsession was there. And I, I, in my mind, I, I can't stand it. I went down five in the morning in the middle of winter, and I'm eating ice cream in the parking lot of a, a local convenience store. And guess what? I finally could stand my own brain. It stopped yelling at me. Um, that's the obsession of the mind. That's what takes me back um, again and again. You know, again, it's like trying to hold my breath. Um, and, 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 and I had to, uh, and by the way, the, the, the definition of insanity in the big book is um, in relationship to a guy um, putting whiskey in his milk and going back to that drink, knowing all that it's going to lead to, going back to the insane asylum, going back, all the consequences and the insanity of that. And it says whatever the precise definition, we call this plain insanity, it's a lack of proportion and the ability to think straight. And, and again, that for me is my mind. My mind can't um, tackle this problem. It doesn't have the power to tackle this problem. If I'm using my thinking mind, uh, if I could find the solution, um, I would have avoided it, right? In that, in that parking lot at five in the morning on that cold winter day, I would have you know, maybe thought through the binge and I could have figured out I don't want that but I didn't have the power. I was trying to use my mind. Uh, and I even had a lot of self-knowledge, but it talks about the fact that self-knowledge, you know, um, self-knowledge is, is, is of no avail. Self-knowledge, you know, knowing that I was a compulsive eater. And I, I don't think I really fully knew what that was. Um, but there's another story, and, and I just want to read a paragraph um, because I find it so indicative. And, and again, we're really talking about the first step, and we can also talk about how we present the first step to other people, and they're talking about a guy who, um, I believe this is Fred, and Fred um, uh, Fred uh, encountered a terrible trigger uh, in, in this world, and it triggered into him drinking it again. He crossed the threshold of a dining room, uh, and that triggered him to drink and go on a run. Uh, and I'm saying that jokingly because, again, we can talk about what triggers you to eat compulsively. Uh, and if you're a true compulsive eater, um, we're not going to have a good answer to that. Um, and my best answer to that is what triggers me to eat compulsively is consciousness. I can't stand uh, being alive and being in my own skin without the anesthetic properties and the effect of my compulsive foods of my alcoholic foods. And for real compulsive eaters, abstinence without 12 steps, without the recovery is intolerable. We can't, we can't do it. We can't sustain it. Um, so Fred, you know, had this self-knowledge. He said, I'm going to take care of this. He said, I got this. And I resonate with that a lot because I had a lot of pride. Um, I had this feeling, I got this. And Fred um, went about his merry way, said he'd stay on guard. Um, he was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud in sight, and he encountered one of these terrible triggers and crossed the threshold of a dining room and had the thought that he should have a drink. Now, after he came off of this run, he met with two uh, members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they said they grinned. And Leah, I am aware of my time. I'm going to try to wrap up in about five minutes. It says, um, they talked to Fred and they said, do you think you're alcoholic and are you really licked 
this time. He says, I had to concede both, both propositions. Now, what they did next is really interesting to me. They piled on heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as he had, as he had exhibited, was a hopeless condition. They cited cases of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that he could do the job himself. So for me, our job, giving people a first step experience, is to devastate them and uh, convince them of a hopeless condition. We want to snuff out that last flicker of conviction that they can do this job themselves. Um, hopelessness is uh, absolutely um, valuable in this program. And I wanted to finish on a high note. I wanted to talk about hope. But for me, what happened uh, and what really made me um, concede to my innermost self and to be willing to go to any lengths and to be willing to go to any lengths is actually a condition that they talk about. It says we assume the reader wants to stop and if they're willing to go to any lengths. Um, that's, a, that's a condition of your first step. What came, how that came to me was by um, hearing and seeing compulsive uh, eaters in person. And this was at the New Jersey Convention in 2017 in September. Um, I went to that convention not abstinent. I was in the food. I thought this is going to be the start of a new abstinence. Um, and for me, the, the juxtaposition of hope and the hopelessness um, finally created that sense uh, of despair and willingness in me. And I just kind of offer this uh, because I think we, we, we truly need to talk about hope. Um, step one is all about hopelessness. Step 12, for me, is about hope. It's about bringing that next person along. Um, and for me, seeing people who were, who were recovered, and it reminds me of Bill when he saw Ebby. Ebby, um, he, he said um, he saw Ebby, and he could see there was something different about him. There was something in his eyes. He was inexplicably different. He said right then and there he changed his definition of a miracle. He saw that. And for me, going to that conference, uh, I, I saw hope. I saw a twinkle in people's eyes, uh, something inexplicably different or something I could trust. And listening to stories and hearing people talk about um, their recovery and I, understanding they truly, truly, truly were like me. Um, they had eaten like I had eaten. They felt like I had felt. But seeing them uh, and the inspiration in their voice and the passion in their way of living, um, the freedom, you know, the fact that they could uh, inhabit normal bodies, uh, the smiles on their face. For me, um, I think it's, uh, it's one of our duties to, to provide an accurate representation of the program, an accurate re representation of the fact that we can recover, we can recover, and to show people that and, and by example and by our words. Uh, and for me, um, knowing, knowing that recovery was uh, absolutely possible, uh, leaving that convention and eating compulsively and binging and purging, even though I had a, a sponsor lined up, that was the beginning of the end for me. Um, so yeah, I didn't get all the stuff covered that I wanted to cover, but I think I'm at the end of my time, and I will, um, I will take questions. And I, I look forward to being a little bit more interactional. Um, but thank you, everybody, for listening in this uh, opportunity. 
Thank you so much, Jason, for your thorough and very captivating presentation on Step 1 this morning. Thanks for sharing your personal experience with all of us on the line. The share ID for this morning's presentation, 12,983. That's 12983. Jason's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so you can stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question and answer segment. You can press star 1 to unmute. First name, first letter of your last name, please. Matt F. from Kansas City. Matt F. Roz Sandy G. W. Roz G. Sandy W. Julie E. B. Beverly R. Beverly R. Gotcha, Beverly. Thus far, I have Matt F. Roz G. Sandy W. Julie E. B. Beverly R. All right, that's a great group. Everybody mute, please, except for Matt. Your question, please. Good morning. I'm Matt. I'm a compulsive overeater from Kansas City, Missouri. Thank you so much for that share um, and that presentation. It was really, um, it was a wonderful thing to listen to while uh, taking a nice walk and contemplating a beautiful morning. Um, my, I, I've, I have a question for you about about unmanageability. Mm-hmm. I've, I've come to feel like um, unmanageability is uh, is less a description of my condition with regard to my life and more just a description of life. Um, if God is everything or God is nothing and God is everything, then it's sort of like it's not unmanageable just because of me and the food. It's like it's actually not manageable. And so manageability isn't what I strive for. Releasing the, manage- the, the desire to manage is what I strive for. But I was curious to know what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, thank you. And that is the second half of step one as stated in the short form. And and it's funny, the big book doesn't really talk a lot explicitly about this. I I tend to um, like to focus people on the internal condition that you're powerless over alcohol, you're powerless over these alcoholic foods, and you can't manage this decision to um, not eat those foods. And you can't manage from that internal position. I think our external worlds are reflections of our internal um, reality. So if you're struggling every day um, with all the symptoms of compulsive eating and this disease, um, it it makes life uh, very hard going. Now, the big book also talks about, you know, selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our problems. And if I get caught in selfishness um, and self-centeredness, my life is going to start becoming uh, very unmanageable. I'm going to be caught up in fear. I'm going to be caught up in resentment. So I, in the third step, we talk about we give our life over to the care of God as we understood him. So I'm not in management um, right now. That's not, that's above my pay grade. Um, We have to stop playing God, which means I think I know how everybody um, should act and how the world should work. Um, Now the big book says, you know, new power flows into us and we access this power greater than ourselves. I think we're given great power to live our lives. Um, uh, but again, my talk is on step one. The, the extent to which we access that power, I think, is driven by the desperation and the, the, the openness to our first step experience. The more we uh, accept and, and, and get on a gut level our uh, powerlessness, 
the more we turn wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly towards God in all our life and turn management over to, to God. So I, I hope that helps. Thank you, Matt, for the question. Raz G, star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah. This is Roz G. Good morning to the speaker. I didn't get your name. Uh, thank you for your share. This is Jason uh, K. Thank you. Okay, Jason K. Thank you. All right. You're uh, welcome, Roz. <laughs> thank you. Oh, Jason, hi. Hey, Roz, okay. yeah. <laughs> Yay. My question. Okay, quick comment. It's only a one-sentence comment. I felt a little conflicted in um, something you said, like one and the other. The first one was that I sat on the therapist's couch, and then later you said, well, I'm having problems with this, so go see a therapist. And my step work has brought me to see a therapist. So I'd like you to comment on that and maybe clear that up a little bit, if possible. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And thank I, you. I think what I, yeah, what I meant to say, and good to hear you, Roz, uh, fellow, uh, fellow teacher, um, is if you're telling yourself an excuse that you can't overcome your eating because of some trauma or some mental disorder that a therapist can solve, go see a therapist and get that treated and then see if you can overcome those, uh, then see if that's the reason why you were compulsively eating. If we think of, of binge eating disorder and compulsive eating, you can look those up in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual and you can learn that certain psychological treatments have effectiveness for that. What I'm talking about is a first step experience that says we're beyond human power. Um, so to treat my addiction, the disease of addiction, I need a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening uh, to be born into a new life, to have a complete psychic change. Now, that being said, uh, I may see a therapist uh, so that they can help me with something that is that is not beyond human uh, human aid, right? So if I have a psychological disorder in addition to, or if I want therapy, or if I value em empathetic listening, I would go see a therapist uh, as an out as an outside help or as an outside issue issue. It's all about putting those things in the right spot. Um, but I, but I I don't see the um, I like to just point out again, it's the disease of addiction is beyond human aid. Um, seeing a psychologist or a therapist won't help you overcome that uh, if you're a true compulsive eater. I, I hope that makes sense. Yes, it does. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Roz. Sandy W., your turn. Thanks, Leah. Thanks so much for your service. And, um, and Jason, what a powerful um, presentation. I really appreciate everything that you said. Um, my question is this, when you're working with someone, uh, with someone coming out of relapse versus someone new to OA, um, do you do anything differently to help them um, experience, I guess, fully accept and experience step one? And I guess my I'm kind of thinking of someone that's been through the steps, so has kind of like the book knowledge of it, but has gone back to the food, so they obviously haven't fully accepted, yeah, their powerlessness. So I'm just curious about that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And thank you for your compliments. And I'm glad you appreciated the talk. Um, so for me, uh, people coming out of relapse, uh, I always go back to step one because 
you know, there's something something that's being missed. Um, I, as much as I want to have a systematic way of sponsoring people, I find it never quite works out that way. Uh, I have to kind of pray and ask for intuitive thought or decision. I have to check in and see how do I serve this particular person. So as um, I, I start to get into step one consideration, you know, I, I may ask the person, well, what does step one mean to you? And I just kind of listen. I reflect, and then I start talking about my uh, experience. So it, there's no um, pat answer, but, um, you know, chronic relapsers, and I was one. Like I said, I had about 17 years in and out, in and out. Um, so I never quite made it in technically because I didn't work the 12 steps in and out of the fellowship. Um, you know, chronic relapsers uh, often have pride. They think they know, like I know, and you have to kind of point out to them, well, you were binging last night, so what do you know? Like you kind of have to maybe poke a hole in their pride, which is what I had. I, I, I was the I know guy. I was the yeah, but, and I know. Those are those are great uh, mantras for chronic relapsers. It's the yeah, but, you know, and they have an explanation why their case is different, why they didn't have to do, you know, do the work that we did. And I know, like, I know, like, I think I know, but my actions show that I'm really a very confused individual. It's a very sensitive thing. Some people, you, they need a little more firm, confrontational, thing, I think, to get through. Uh, some people need gentleness and compassion. I, so I always pray and try to um, be of service uh, in the way that's going to uh, affect that particular person. Thank you. That was so helpful. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Sandy W. Julie E.B., star one to unmute. Oh, Jason, I just thought that was just a beautiful, um, a beautiful journey into just a very common experience, uh, focusing on that internal experience instead of all of the externals that are so different for all of us that help us to identify out. And uh, it very much rang true with me. Um, and uh, I'm dealing daily right now with someone who's in the disease and, um, and, uh, uh, I really loved what you had to say about the, you know, our role in driving home the hopelessness, um, and yet our role in bringing hope. Um, maybe you could give me, um, you know, even though I'm not the person best suited to help the person that I love, um, uh, I, I just really, um, that person, you know, had to confront some consequences last night, and, and, um, and yet. You know, hearing that despair, I just want to say, oh, it'll be okay. Um, and yet, uh, as you said, praying, next step, next action, I can hear that coming out of your voice uh, for me today. Uh, maybe you can just explore that line of hopelessness and hope um, in our role working with others. Thanks for letting me share, and I pass. Yeah, thank you, and, and good to hear from you, and, and thank you for your kind words. Um, and that's a, that's a tough position, I think we're, you know, we're called to speak the truth. And, you know, um, there's some people in my circle, you know, that are compulsive eaters and really relapse or compulsive eaters not yet in recovery. Um, you know, and, and if I talk to those people, and I kind of uh, poo poo it, and I, if I kind of say, you know, oh, it'll be all right, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. Um, and that person uh, ends up dying, you know, because I met one of them at the doctor's office with uh, artery blockage and, and 
eating compulsively while um, diabetic, uh, if that person died, could I go to sleep that night thinking uh, I did my best to reach that person? You know, there's some harsh truth. And like I, I talked about myself, uh, you know, I had these delusions and illusions that I couldn't see until I kind of talked them out. Now, since you're in a family situation, like I, I can't give advice. I don't know. I've never been there. But you're going to have to pray about this one. Maybe we could talk about it one-to-one um, because, you know, this is a family situation and you have certain roles and certain um, obligations and certain responsibilities. So I, I can't say, but I, I know for me, I try to speak the truth. I try to ask God, God, what, you know, what can you show me? Uh, and the people in my own life that I talk to, you know, uh, you know, I'll say, you know, it's been over a year, year and a half. I haven't wanted to eat, you know, sugar, flour, donuts, you know, all those things. I haven't even wanted to. I haven't eaten them. I haven't, you know, binged and purged, right? I'll speak that hope, you know. I play ice hockey and, I, you know, I feel like I have rockets on my legs and, you know, and, and, and I feel amazing. I, I do, you know, acro yoga and I, you know, pick people up over my head with one hand and, and I live, in a, live a really cool life. And I, you know, and if I get a chance to say, like, it's because of God and the 12 steps, like, <laughs> I really need to get that in. Cause, uh, that's the hope. That's the power that we can uh, inspire people. You know, we want people to see our lives and say, I want what they have, you know. Um, they want this recovery. So I hope that helps, Julie. Thanks, Julie E.B., for the question. And Beverly R., your turn. Star one on mute, Beverly. Hello, my name is Beverly R. from Gaithersburg, Maryland, which is Eastern Standard Time. And my question, I think you've answered part of it, maybe. I consider myself a chronic relapser. What do you have to say for me? And I want to tell you that I talk about and know it all. That's Beverly. <laughs> thank you, Beverly, and thank you for your uh, honesty and humility. Uh, again, I was a chronic relapser, you know, in, out, in, out, abstinence, not binge, purge. Um, it's a, you know, I'm not sure what to say to you other than I, I listen to as many step, uh, step one talks as I can, and I study the material again and again. And, you know, I talked about the newcomers, and we talk about newcomers. But what about people who have, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of experience? I, I hope, um, you know, I hope this talk was helpful, but I also give the consideration our step one truth uh, drives our recovery today. And for me, it's a, a visceral thing that if I eat compulsively, I don't know if I'm coming back to program. I don't know if I would kill myself because I was very, very suicidal in the midst of my disease with such deep, deep pain and shame and feeling so trapped. Um, I have to um, live this truth, and I feel it on a visceral level. Uh, to me, to eat compulsively is to die, and I work my program uh, as if uh, that's my choice. I have those two options, and it, it, like I said, it, it's something I want, a truth I want to feel and taste and believe on a day-to-day -day basis, and I find that I connect most with people who have that strong step one experience, and um, these people... Uh, and I hope I'm in that, um, you know, in that crowd, work a program, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, relatively top-notch, and they, they, they work it with a seriousness and a, a passion. 
um, and adapt. That's uh, very inspiring. Um, so just, you know, I could talk to you one-on-one because, you know, um, and see if we can kind of get you um, further along that path. But that's, and, and, and for, for me, there's a mystery to all of this because, you know, some people, they'll, they'll admit they're compulsive eaters. They tell you they got the disease. You know, they'll call you. I've had a guy call me and say, you know, I listened, um, he listened to another talk that I had made and he, he said, he, you know, he cried through the whole thing and I told his story. I said, well, okay, let's get the sponsorship. You know, you think he'd be ready and willing and, you know, and he's not, you know, so there's a certain mystery to all this. And, and, you know, as much as I love to consider how to grow and understanding and effectiveness of how to present these step one conceptions, there's a certain grace and a certain mystery that, and, and all of this that, you know, we have to be willing to be led and maybe God uh, leads us to be willing somehow. So there's, there's something I don't, I haven't quite figured out of all about all this. Uh, and I suspect I never will, uh, but I'd be happy to talk to more, to you more one-on-one. Thank you, Beverly R for your question. This will be the final invitation for questions. Who else has a question for Jason? Similar B. Melinda. Lee H. Melinda. Melinda. Lee H. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh huh. And was there Pamela? Did I hear Pamela? Yes, you did. Okay, excellent. Who else? Marzi. Jesse M. Jackie M. Franny K. Franny. Was there a Jessie M as well? Yeah, that's sorry, Jessie, not Jackie. Gotcha. Thank you for the correction. Anyone else? This will be final invitation for questions. Going once, twice. All right. Minds are cleared. Pamela, go ahead with your question, please. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Uh, Thank you, Jason, so much for your share. I can really relate. Mm -hmm. Uh, I came in um, September 2017, and I reclaimed my seat in the room. And... uh, very grateful to be here today. So now, you know, fast forward it. I'm sponsoring now. And the other day, I have a very brand new person, first time experience in a 12-step uh, room period, and obviously with this program. And what what she shared with me the other day was that um, she feels as though she uh, needs to reset her, I don't know how she described it, reset her her body and also that uh so anyways what she's doing is fasting now i've been in program for over 12 years and for me i shared her my experience of that and i said to her uh this is still an an area unless you have religious you know reasons for doing this because i understand this is ramadan but this is way past that point. So, so let me just let me just jump in in the interest of time. Is your question about fasting, and if you'd recommend that to somebody? No, 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 no. It's not about fasting. Okay. How do you how do you help someone 
who has taken, who has decided that they want to fast as opposed to follow the food plan. Okay, okay, thank you. Thank you for your question. Yeah, yeah, Um, I don't know. Um, So I've never experienced that. I always encourage people to pray and trust their gut. You know, you're trying to see if somebody's um, trying to engage in an, an anorexic behavior, but you have to kind of assess that and, you know, be honest. Like if you if you feel concerned or uncomfortable, but, you know, we also are giving people the dignity of choice about their food. So, you know, I have sponsees who eat foods I can't eat. I eat foods my sponsees can't eat. So it's a very individualized uh, type of thing. Um, and, and it may be absolutely right for that person. It may not be. It's really hard to say. I'd be happy to talk to you more one-on-one if you catch my number at the end of the um, talk. Yeah, I like that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Pamela R. Melinda H. is next. Bruce E., by the way, you are on the end of the list for questions. So hold on on that. Melinda, go ahead with your question. Um, Yes. Could you elaborate on the I know phrase? Um, I don't have the yeah buts, but I have a lot of I knows. I know what's bad for me, I know this, I know that. I have been told, this might be a separate issue, but I have been told by multiple recovered people that I do not have uh, step one down, that I mm-hmm. I don't have it. Good, yeah, thank you so much for your question. And um, for me, it was about pride. Um, I, for instance, um, thought I knew a lot about recovery and I could talk a good talk. I listened to people to confirm what I already knew. I had questions and concerns. I didn't, you know, the big book seemed contradictory to me to say that only God can relieve us of this obsession, but we need to be willing to go to any lengths. Because I'd ask God and I'd say, remove this defect character, or sorry, God, keep me abstinent today. And I'd get up and walk away from my, you know, the end of my bed, my traditional praying spot, and I'd eat compulsively. And I wasn't going to any length, and I didn't understand, and I wanted God to remove this obsession. I didn't realize I was blocked from God. So um, when I finally became willing, I, I started asking on the very first day of my abstinence, I called up a, me- a member in the program. I truly respect his recovery. I said, why, does, why do I have to be willing to go to any length, but only God can do this? And I listened. I became teachable. Um, so there's a humility and openness, uh, a willingness to learn new ideas and part of it is you have to bring out some of those old ideas to light and to life and you have to consider your actions in this world are telling a story uh, and your words are telling you one thing and if those two aren't lining up you have to reconcile that discrepancy so if I sit there and say yeah I know the steps are the answer and I don't work the steps and I eat compulsively do I really know the steps are the answer or or what's happening there so just dig deeper. Again, it's, it's a very personal question, so I'm happy to talk with you one-on-one, um, but those are just some general thoughts. And, and yeah, thank you for your question. Thanks so much, Melinda H. Lee H., your turn. Did you just call Lee H.? I did. Go ahead with your question. <laughs> thank you, Leah. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for your talk this morning. I could relate to so much of what you're talking about. I feel like I've been in the program for a couple of years now, and I'm just wondering, um, 
you know, is it was it a process for you with step one? Like, did you have to kind of keep looking at step one as you worked all the steps um, when you started sponsoring? Did you have to keep looking at step one? I've had tried to be a sponsor a couple of times and it's failed, and then I start feeling like a failure, like maybe my program isn't clean enough, and then that kind of gets me back into looking at myself and, you know, mm -hmm. I've had a couple of relapses over it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to the convention and just uh, was there, you know, I, I don't know. My question is, is how important is step one as you work all the steps and sponsor people? Thanks. Yeah, thank you for your question. Um, you know, a lot of people, uh, for me, that have a strong step one experience, realize this is like a life or death thing. And uh, I love one of my sponsees, if she starts um, saying, oh, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that, I just say, no, you don't have to. Uh, and, and she laughs because she knows the next thing I'm going to say is, like, you can go back into the addiction and maybe you're going to die, probably. Like, it's life or death. Um, so for me, that step one experience deepens and broadens even in my recovery today, preparing for this talk, I listened to more speakers talk about step one. Um, about a year into recovery, I um, I had this sort of thing. I was thinking back about my past, and I, I, I remembered at this time around 10 or 12, and I, I really separated and distanced myself from my parents and uh, created this strong resentment, and I don't know why I didn't realize this at first, but it was about a year into my recovery, maybe six months ago, and I said, that was my alcoholic mind at work. Whoa. And that was interesting because I realized, you know, this disease centers in our mind uh, and our spirit, and spiritually, I disconnected from these two amazing people, my parents, who today, I, I, I'd love to be more like them in so many ways. So, um, for me, yes, the, the first step absolutely deepens and, and, and it is a process and I learn more and I, I, I surrender to that truth uh, uh, on a deeper level. And I come to really respect the disease, you know, as I look at, you know, relapse rates and I look at suicide rates of, of addicts, um, sober addicts have suicide rates that are um, pretty high. I, I come to respect the disease. I surrender even more to this, this fact and to this process. And I consider time to time that this is a progressive disease, which means, yeah, I have a year and a half plus of recovery, but if I go, if I went back, it would be worse, you know? So, so it absolutely for me deepens. And like I said, it drives everything. And the extent to which I really accept and understand this first step drives my recovery today. So, um, yeah, thank you for the question. I hope that helped. Thank you, Lee H. Maura Z, your turn. Maura Z, star one to unmute. I'm sorry, new phone, 42 buttons to get to the unmute. <clears throat> Good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service. Thank you, Jason Kay. I have a question, um, and I've been trying to find the big book reference, but I can't. Um, my question is, um, you know, I was I was speaking um, with um, 
some folks last night, and one of one of the folks was saying that you know she's got a very good strong relationship with her higher power, um, but she hasn't been able to, and it, and it works for her in all these different areas of her life, but it doesn't work for her in this particular area. And and I know that there's a passage in the book, um, you know, I was once strong for God or strong for religion or church or whatever it is, but I'm trying to remember. I wasn't able to articulate to this gal last night what it is specifically about, yes, I already have a relationship with God, but it's not working in this. Can you speak to that a little bit as far as step one goes, if that makes sense? Yes. So I think it's Roland Hazard, and he reflects that I was a, Dr. Young tells him he needs a spiritual experience to overcome alcoholism. And he says, uh, you know, um, Roland reflects that he'd been a good church-going man um, and had a certain faith. But that doesn't, um, Carl Jung says, that doesn't spell the necessary vital uh, spiritual experience. So I have people that believe in God, and I say, well, why hasn't God relieved you of this uh, uh, obsession to eat compulsively? Um, And I think people don't necessarily understand the nature of this disease and the fact that they need a spiritual awakening around this. You know, so people can have compartmentalized uh, lives and beliefs. They can be, you know, and there's people in this program, too, and they have great experience. You know, I technically believed in God, but practically I wanted God to work for me. Um, You know, I say, God, keep me abstinent and, you know, get me the woman and the better job and the nice car. Uh, there's my wish list, go for it. Um, so, um, it, you know, you you have to start to um, talk to people about, well, you believe in God. Um, how come God hasn't removed this from you? And then share about your own experience, about if you have experience with recovery, saying, I submitted to a process and um, around this particular thing, the food, and I've, I've experienced recovery. Um, you know, share with them some hope. And share with them that, you know, you're like them. Um, so I hope that helps. And, you know, if, if you have a follow-up question, you know, feel free to take my number. Thanks, Maura Z. Jessie M., your turn, star one, to unmute. Hey, Jason. Thank you so much. I'm a newcomer. I'm currently mm-hmm. working my fifth step, former teacher. I heard you say teacher. Um, mm-hmm. My question is, um, you spoke a little about people not understanding the disease, like your dad with the pepperoni sausage. How do you mm-hmm. handle that gracefully? What What do you say to those people, or do you just not say anything? Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for your question, and welcome. Uh, so, yeah, teachers are a special breed, um, so yeah. I'll say that. <laughs> um, again, a, a lot of, I like to really remind people pray and ask for guidance in any questionable situation. Some people uh, revealing the nature of your disease and uh, your recovery would not be a prudent thing to do, and it might lead to more harm and suffering. I had to look at my own family, my own dad, and realize I had uh, certain blockages between him, and I had not been honest with him, and I'd been afraid to be vulnerable, and it was keeping me from... uh, uh, a close relationship with him. My dad didn't understand my disease because I never explained it to him and I never told him what I was up against. And my higher power and my amends and my sponsor guided me towards an open, honest conversation with my dad. And that's because he's my dad and I I know him and, uh, and uh, that's what was appropriate. You're going to have to, um, you know, consider for yourself 
but but for me and where I tend in my thinking is towards open, honest uh, disclosure, uh, and that's what helped me and my dad start to establish a relationship because I had to make amends with him for being so fear-based and being so untruthful um, about that because he, he was making comments like, I, you know, you're using a scale again, you're getting obsessive, that's unnecessary. But I had to start telling him, you know, here's my history, here's what I've been up against. And I said, guess what? That's why I use a scale. You know, I have a crazy head and the scale really, really helps me not to obsess about this. And <laughs> so he kind of had some moments where he was like, oh, crap, this is what you're up against. He's never made a comment about me using a food scale again. In fact, he's offered to help me get one when I didn't forgot to travel with mine and I thought my mom had one and she didn't. He started trying to help me find one, um, you know. So uh, th that's what I have to share about that. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Jesse M. Franny K., your turn. Good morning. Good morning, Jason. Thank you so much. And Leah, you are uh, a stone in my uh, archway here, my uh, foundation. And thank you for being teachers. Um, I do have a question about the first time you, Jason, I am in my first hundred days and I'm a chronic relapse. I think we lost you. I can't hear you now. I'm so sorry. Thank you, everybody. Jason, you're my teacher. My question is about your first 100 days. You said you had that horrible um, 5 a.m. experience. I am in my first 100 days after being in these rooms since the turn of the century. I've been away to treatment twice for my uh, bulimia. And uh, I have had my spiritual awakening in the last 30 days. My screensaver on my phone is of my last bin. Uh, I took a picture of the five packages of an item that I ate. Constant reminder, and I think my blockage has been my ego. So I love hearing my fellows on this line say death of ego is what I needed. I'm hoping that my ego cannot be resurrected. But can you speak about that first 100 days? When you had that situation, was it because you had not, was it the spiritual connection at that point that you were lacking? Thank you so much. You're welcome. And, and yes, we need ego deflation at depth uh, to work our first step. And our ego will come back and try to reassert itself. And we need continued um, surrender towards this process. The, process the, the thing that happened to me when I had over three months of abstinence um, was that I had not worked the steps, I had not had a spiritual awakening, and therefore I was untreated in my disease, but abstinent or dry, as uh, the alcoholic term happens. And in that condition, as a true compulsive eater, it was only a matter of time, it was an inevitability that I was going to be eating compulsively again. Um, so I had not humbled myself and I had not taken the first step because I had not. Um, followed the program of recovery, and I, I was trying to beat the game on my own. Um, and so if, if you're talking about the fact that you've had a spiritual awakening, um, and I would absolutely encourage you to be sponsoring and sharing hope with others and leading them through this process, and that is the key to vital and permanent recovery. So I think it sounds like you're on the right path. Thank you. Thank you for your question. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Franny K. Our final question for the morning comes from Bruce E. 
Okay, Bruce E. in uh, North Carolina. Uh, Jason, great commentary. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm recovered about a month now, and I'm so busy doing these 10 steps every day that are coming up, all this ego and pride and arrogance and uh, resentment, fears that are coming up all the time. I haven't been thinking much about powerlessness. So I, I'm concerned about that because I know that uh, that's got to be something that's active and alive in me. So how do you keep reminding yourself about powerlessness when you're so busy, you know, covering all these bases of recovery now? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Bruce, and good hear, hearing from you. And um, for me, the reason and the rationale and the, the reason I, you know, get up out of bed uh, and then meditate and then get on my knees and the reason I do my 11-step inventory and, the, and I call people for 10 steps every day is because I'm standing on the foundation of recognizing my powerlessness. I'm knowing that if I don't stay connected to my higher power and uh, work to maintain my spiritual fitness, if I'm blocked, uh, I know that I'm going to eat compulsively again. I know that I can't maintain and hold on to this life that I've been given, this amazing life, unless I do those 10 steps. Um, so to me, um, the question I would ask you is, why are you driven and willing to do the 10 steps? And it's probably because of your first step experience. And if it's not, take some time to reflect. Take some time to connect with that um, and Another really, really great way to connect with that is to teach it, to so start sponsoring um, people and, and, and qualifying people and, and working with the, the, the big book. So that's what I'd, I'd say. Thanks, Bruce. And thanks to everybody who posed the question this morning. And, of course, thank you to our speaker, Jason Kay, for such a fabulous and valuable presentation. Looking forward to having that archived on our website to help those in need and support those who are going through the process. Thank you so much, Jason Kay. We're going to close from page 164. You're going to find that in a chapter entitled a vision for you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>